one of the characters in the movie has a reoccurring joke throughout the movie where he constantly shouts at whatever's happening, inconceivable, right? And as the movie goes on, this happens dozens of times until finally one of the other characters replies, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means, right? I don't have a very good accent for him, so I'm not going to try, but that's what he says. And I think in church, oftentimes we throw around words, words like the gospel, words like faith all the time. And sometimes I'd like to say, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. And sometimes, sometimes I find that I have to say that to myself. Now, I'm not saying that we can't define words like dictionary definitions. We can't define a word like the gospel, for instance. I said earlier that the gospel is how God loves and saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We saw last week uh, in our passage that Paul describes here in Romans the gospel as how God justifies us by faith alone in Christ alone. But have you considered what that means, right? If you remember, when we started this series in Romans, we talked about the fact that the whole book of Romans, you could, you could kind of define it or put it in a sentence as it being all about how the gospel must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. How the gospel what Christ has done, how God loves and saves sinners through the life, death, how, how the gospel, justification by faith alone in Christ alone must shape what we believe and shape how we behave as a church. And most Christians think about faith or they think about the gospel and its implications as merely being for moving people from being unsaved to saved, from being not believers to believers, from hell to heaven. And that's true but I do not think it means what you think it means. Or at least, I do not think it only means what you think it means. If we are justified by faith, that has radical implications and applications for what we believe and how we ought to behave. If that's the gospel, then how is it shaping the way we, church, believe about the world, about God, ourselves, others, and how we behave in those places and in those relationships. And Paul today is going to deal with one critical way that it ought to shape us, and that's pride. So last week, the, the, the passage was kind of technical. It was kind of theologically deep and, and rich and heavy and and the sermon was kind of that way, and I encourage you, if you missed that, to go back on our podcast and listen to it, because I think it would be very helpful to understand how Paul is defining the gospel moving forward. But today, and as much as that was technical, today's passage is incredibly practical and applicable to our everyday lives, and so the sermon is going to follow suit. Having described our great need for the gospel and how we are justified by it through faith in Christ, Paul turns his questioning to a very important application, right? He asks the question, then what becomes of boasting? Boasting, boasting in ourselves is implied, uh, pride, 
What about pride? What about self-confidence? What about self-reliance? And Paul's response is this. It is excluded. It's excluded. Not restricted. Not limited. Not like a little bit. But none. Zero. We are justified by faith alone apart from works. That's what he's going to say in this passage. That's what he's going to lay out for us in this passage. We are justified by faith alone apart from works. We have nothing to boast about in ourselves because nothing that we have done has benefited our salvation. As I said at the end of last week, I believe it's R.C. Sproul quote, that the only thing that we ever did to move us towards salvation is the sin that makes it necessary, right? It's all we've done. Pride, friends, is like poison to the gospel. Pride, it undercuts faith, faith foundation of our life. It kills it. I want you to understand. Here's the big point. If we put this whole sermon in a sentence, I'm going to tell you ahead of time what it's about. This is what it's about. Pride cannot persist where faith exists. See what I did there? It kind of rhymes, kind of alliterates. Pride cannot persist where faith exists. We may have faith in the ultimate sense, as in faith in that Christ saves us, but the life of faith is a life of trust in God. It's, it's a life of trusting God, trusting Christ every single day with every single thing in our life, right? Rather than trusting ourselves. And faith is the rule of life for the Christian. Wherever pride creeps in, to the extent that it creeps in, it whispers to us sweet nothings while silently murdering our faith. I want you to understand that. That's what pride does. It comes up behind us and it whispers sweet nothings in our ear and then it stabs us in the back. I want to be clear. I don't think that there is anything more dangerous to your faith, to your growth in Christ, to your spiritual life than pride. I believe as I read scripture front to back multiple times, that there is nothing that is more dangerous to your faith and your growth in Christ and your relationship with God than pride, and especially, especially spiritual pride. So this morning I want to show that it must be faith apart from works by explaining two things. I want to explain why faith eliminates pride, and I want to explain to you why faith is better than pride. Why faith eliminates pride and why faith is actually better than pride. Why trusting Christ is actually better for you than trusting yourself. So here's, here's, here it is. I, and I know like you're probably already feeling it like, oh, Cody, start talking about pride, man. Dang it. I should have skipped this Sunday. That's what I should have done. This is not the Sunday I wanted to come to. Well. Stick with me. It'll hurt a little bit at the beginning, but I promise it's, it's, it's nice at the end. Why faith eliminates pride. Paul gives us three reasons in the text. Reason number one, God owes you nothing. All right? 
No one wants to hear this, but it is so incredibly true. I, I can't even say it enough. God owes you nothing. At the beginning, Paul talks about two standards, the law of works, that's the Mosaic law, or the law of faith. It is the law of faith that justifies us apart from the works of the law because we learned that we all have failed at following the law. So nothing you've done before or after you were saved has done anything at all to move the needle in regards to your relationship or your standing with God. You remember last week, if, if you were here, the cookie illustration, right? One of my favorite illustrations. I, I have a box of cookies. I bought the box of cookies. I did the job that got me the paycheck that, that paid for the box of cookies. And I go to the kitchen and I eat a cookie and my kids are sitting there and they say, hey, dad, can I have a cookie? And I say, no, you can't have a cookie. This is my cookie. And I'm completely justified in doing that because they did not do anything to deserve that cookie. And they say, well, that's no fair, dad. And I say, actually, that's perfectly fair. That is exactly fair. That is the definition of fair. And if I give you a cookie... That is a gift. That is a grace. You did not deserve it. You did not do anything. Now, if I tell you, go mow the lawn and I'll give you a cookie and you mow the lawn, then you earned that cookie. That's, that's a payment. That's a wage. But if you did nothing to deserve the cookie, it's not fair that you didn't get it. And friends, you did nothing to deserve being in right relationship with God. Nothing. You only did things that would take that away. And so God owes you nothing. There are two standards. Either you're trusting in what you've done, trying to earn something, which we fail at, or faith in the trusting God and his grace that he has gifted us something. God owes you nothing. That's the number one reason why we are not to have pride, why we can't have pride why there is no boasting. Reason number two, nothing about you makes you more savable. This kind of uh, is maybe an outgrowth of the first point, but I think it's an important uh, differentiation here that we need to be clear on. Paul asks this question, is God the God of Jews only or is he not the God of Gentiles also? I want you to understand that you, who you are, where you were born, what you've done, what you look like, what family you come from, what state you come from, what, uh, whatever you come from, that none of that makes you more or less savable. None of that makes you more worthy to be saved or more likely to be saved. It's, here's a telltale sign that spiritual pride is creeping in. When you think about someone else, someone who's your friend, who you know doesn't know Christ, and you think about them, you think, gosh, I can't imagine that they would come to Christ. Implied there is, I can't imagine how I came to Christ because I'm me. Telltale sign that you're allowing spiritual pride to creep in. Christian, you are just as unlikely to be saved, just as undeserving, just as unsavable as any of the other 7 billion people who live on the face of this earth. If the Holy Spirit does it, then he does it, not you. And so Paul asks this question, is God the God of Jews only or is he the God of Gentiles? And the answer is yes, of course, he's the God of Gentiles also, since God is one, he says. You see, the pagan Gentiles certainly had gods. 
Back in Paul's day, they had lots of little G gods, right? Lots of them. And, and every different people group had their own little G gods that they followed. And one of the most precious and repeated beliefs for the Jews of Paul's day and prior is this, this one thing. It's Deuteronomy 6.4. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul. That's the most precious thing the most precious truth. There's only one God. And all of these people, they claim to follow all of these other gods, but there is actually only one true God. And Paul takes that belief that's most precious to the Jews, and he actually like flips it on them, right? And he says, if that's true, then God must not be merely the God of the Jews. He must be the God of every single kind of person that walks the earth. Paul uses that belief to show why being a Jew doesn't make them more savable. If you say that all these other gods are really not gods and there's only one God that's the true God, then that God must be the true God over all of the other little G gods and all the people who follow all of these false gods. If he is the true God for all of them, then there must be a way for all other people to access that true God. It's the argument that Paul's making here. Thus, faith can justify both the circumcised, both the Jew, right? Circumcision is a sign or a seal of being, uh, of the covenant that God made with the Jewish people. It's maybe the most Jewish-esque thing that someone would do in Paul's day. And he says, no, God, by faith, can justify the circumcised and the uncircumcised physically. There is nothing about your circumcision, he says, that makes you more or less savable any more than God is God over you and not God over every single person. And so God owes you nothing. You got no pride because God owes you nothing. You, got, you can't have any pride because you're not any more savable than anyone else. But the third reason is this. Uh, uh, nothing eliminates the standard. Nothing eliminates the standard. Let me explain. Paul tells us that this faith doesn't overthrow the law. It actually upholds the law. It doesn't eliminate the standard that God gave people. It's not like you can say, well, I can have pride because uh, that standard isn't, isn't in force anymore, that I don't have to live according to that standard. And so we've now... Instead of raising myself up over something, now I've just lowered the standard down below where I am, and now I pride again. Paul says, no, you can't do that. It, it upholds it. Faith doesn't claim that the law no longer needs to be obeyed. Faith shifts the one whose obedience we trust in from ourselves to Jesus. Do you understand this? Faith doesn't say the law doesn't need to be obeyed. Faith just merely shifts whose obedience we trust in from ourselves we failed, to Jesus, and he hasn't. We're trusting him to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The standard doesn't go away. The object, the object of our faith, the, the object that we put our confidence in for meeting that standard shifts from ourselves to Jesus. So those are our three reasons why we can't have pride. Before we jump into how faith is better than pride, I want 
I want to help. And maybe, maybe this is a, a part of why faith is better than pride. I want to help us to see why pride and putting our confidence in ourselves, not just for eternity, but in everything in our everyday life is so incredibly risky. So good things come in threes. So you're getting a lot of threes today. So here are three risks. And I want to say on the forefront that I am incredibly, uh, 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 what's the word, indebted to the work of Timothy Keller on these three points, really opening my eyes to, to this connection. So well, risk one, pride can lead to division. You see, to keep our pride or our confidence, we have to uh, think of ourselves as better than other people, right? That is a natural outflow of pride. As soon as I began to be prideful, I begin to rank myself in comparison to other people. Some people are less than me. Some people might be more than me, and I'm less than them. And the natural progression is that they become more or less deserving, then they become more or less human. When we start to think that we are owed something or that we have earned or are entitled to something that we actually aren't, division is inevitable. We begin to rank people, the do's and the don'ts, and we place value on which ones are the most important, right? And, and it's interesting because the way we do this, when we begin to rank like which, which uh, pieces of obedience are more or less important, the way we do it is it always turns out that the ways that we are more easily obedient end up being the more important ones, and the ways, the things that we struggle with, those don't matter as much. That, that, we don't weigh that, that. That's, you know, it's a weighted system, and those are, are less important, I think. And it always turns out that people like us, people like me, tend to be better at the things that, that, that are more important, worse at the things that aren't. That's how we do it, because we're prideful, right? We do it without even thinking about it. We do it without even recognizing it, because our hearts are so deceptive. We find our pride in the identities we attach ourselves to, and, and, and always our identities are always tend to be better than other people's identities. And this can feel really good in the moment until we're the ones who fail, right? Until we're the ones that fail. And that leads to our other two risks. Risk number two is this. Pride can lead to denial. Pride can lead to denial. To keep our pride or our confidence, we have to ignore our sin and flaws or the sins and flaws of people like us. The problem here is that when we or someone else don't live up to whatever the standard is, we have to do something about that, right? Crud, I didn't live up to the standard. What am I gonna do? Someone like me or someone in my group didn't live up to the standard. What am I gonna do? Oh, I have a good idea. I'll just turn a blind eye to it. I'll just blindfold myself, pretend it isn't there. I'll demote it on the, risk of, on the list of priorities. Even our natural limitations we have, we're not even talking about moral limitations, just natural limitations. Man, some things I'm just not good at. To keep my pride up, I have to demote those limitations down. I have to turn a blind eye to them. We refuse to admit even the most obvious issue that exists because if you admit even an inch of flaw, even an inch of limitation, then those people will take a mile. And that won't feel good. Then I'll get, I'll, get, I'll get ranked down on the list of how good people are. I can't have that. That's worst case scenario. 
We start to not care about truth or justice or any of that, but we care about protecting the thing that's, that we're putting our trust in. All we care about then is protecting the things in our lives that we are putting our trust and our confidence in that are not Jesus. Protect it at any cost. Is this sucking yet? Because it was really hard for me to write this sermon. You preach it to yourself before you preach it up here. And, and I've had a, a rough last 10 to, to two weeks, 10, 10 to 14 days. Risk number three, pride can lead to dread. So it can lead to division, it leads to denial, and then, it, and then finally it leads to dread, doesn't it? Here's what I mean. To keep our confidence, we must protect whatever gives us that sense of pride, right? And we can do that viciously and by any means necessary. Man, the more trust we put in that thing, the more viciously we will protect that thing. The more that we will bypass our morals and the standards that we would normally follow to keep that thing safe. Because if, because if that thing goes, then my self-worth goes. But faith says, you never had self-worth in yourself. You, you by yourself are unworthy. Only in Christ do we have worth. Only from God, the fact that he created us, do we have worth. And so if we can't protect this thing, then what happens? We become desperately anxious. We become restless in our sleep at night because we, oh my goodness, I've got to hold on to this thing. If my pride and confidence is in my ability to preach well, let's say, as an example, if someone tells me that my sermon was terrible, then it's more than just a critique to learn from. It's an affront to who I am as a person. It's a personal offense. I'm shattered. My self-worth is shattered. I go home depressed from church. I eat a bunch of cookies. Don't give any to my kids. Heaven forbid if I was actually fired as a pastor, right? Oh my word, what would I do at that point? If all of my pride has come from this role that God has given me rather than from God who gives it, then I would fall into a, just a complete disarray, right? my pride and confidence is in looking like a good Christian, then I will desperately cover up my sins. Desperately cover up my sins to keep that image. I won't confess them, which is actually what will help me to actually be better and more like Christ. Because my concern isn't getting more Jesus. My concern is getting more praise for myself. So we find in churches, and we find, and it won't take you long to find examples of this, pastors or Christian leaders or whoever who have been in egregious sin for a long time and have kept it hidden because their pride and their reliance is not in Christ, but it has been in themselves and in their position and in their image. 
sovereignty. We can find all sorts of reasons to justify sinful actions and motivations in order to preserve or to get back the thing that gives us pride or confidence because, because that thing has become the or a defining mark of our identity. The things you put your trust in, they begin to define who you are and how you see yourself. But the gospel calls us to make a trust transfer. To take our our, our trust funds out of that bank and put it into a different bank, into Christ, into what he has done instead. To move it from ourselves and what we do and where we're from and what we look like and all these other things and to move it to Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us in the gospel. And so Paul, he gives us two examples in chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 of why faith is better than pride. He talks about Abraham and he talks about the words of David. Paul asks, what about Abraham? He's regarded as the most righteous, universally regarded as the most righteous, the father of everyone, the forefather of our faith. Perhaps compared to you, Abraham was righteous, but he says, not before God, not before God. Even before God, Abraham has no reason to boast. Even Abraham falls well short of that standard. It was not Abraham's works that made him righteous. What does it say in the passage? He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Counted is a financial term. Like something is credited to your account when we didn't do anything to deserve or to earn it. It's like you are in incredible debt. And you don't know what you're going to do and how you're going to get out of it. And the repo man is coming. Maybe a guy that's going to, you know, with a crowbar that's going to get your leg or something. It's a bad deal, right? And, and you go to the bank and you're, and you're expecting to see that negative $1 million or whatever. And you go there and it's just like unlimited. Uh, not negative, it's like plus a billion dollars. I don't know. You, you pick the, the number, right? And you're like, where did this come from? Uh, someone credited it to your account. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Nothing. Nothing. Faith will result, friends, in more righteous living and obedience. Obedience can be an evidence of faith, but faith doesn't equal obedience. See, faith and grace, they're not opposed to effort, right? In fact, they promote effort in following Christ. Faith and grace are opposed to earning. You don't earn those things. It's about where your heart's at. Abraham trusted in God's saving provision. It's not Abraham's works, but Christ's perfect righteousness that was credited to him, the same as it is credited to us. It must be this way. This can't be must be this way because otherwise, as I said earlier, salvation would be a wage, not a gift. But it is a gift. And what does it say in our passage? It is a gift to the ungodly, no less. Do you get this? 
that God didn't give you the gift of salvation when you got yourself cleaned up, when you were good enough. The Bible repeatedly, and in Romans we'll see it repeatedly, emphasizes the fact that Jesus did this when you were ungodly. We like to think that God saved us in our best moment, right? We like to think when we think about what Christ has done for us, we like to think about our best moments in our life. We put up the top five good, goodest things that Cody did. I see, Jesus, aren't you glad you saved me? You know what Jesus puts up? He puts up the bottom five. He says, no, I saved you then. 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 That's when I died on the cross for you. Not there, there. Think about that. God says, I save the ungodly. You don't think you need someone to credit your account, then you're denying an essential element of salvation, that you are a sinner. And that, and guys, this is where it's beautiful. This is where it becomes beautiful. Because if it's credited to us, then we don't have to be crushed by it. If it's been credited to us, then I don't have to be crushed by the standard. The weight of obedience, it can be crushing at times. The weight of doing the right thing and being a good person, it can be overwhelming. It can be paralyzing because we think, I'm going to screw it up. I make mistakes all the time. But if it's credited on your account, it no longer has to be crushing. It is uplifting. Your account, if you're a Christian, cannot go into default. If you are a Christ follower and you've put your, trace, your trust in Christ, no one will ever come and take your home from underneath of you because Christ has done it. Not you. Your eternal home is solid. And then, friends, then we can pursue obedience without being crushed by our failings. And that should cause us to have such sweet joy and rejoicing, right? And Paul quotes David, uh, David's psalm right here. It's a blessing to be justified based on a gift, not based on our works. It's blessing. It's a blessing that we are forgiven. It's a blessing that our sins are covered. Covered. That our sins are not counted against us. This is the nature of the gift, that our unrighteousness is not counted against us, but that his righteousness is counted for us. And do you feel the freedom to rejoice regardless of the circumstances of your life because of what Christ has done for you? It's inconceivable, right? I was waiting the whole sermon for that moment. Let me give you three freedoms that faith gives that pride does not. Okay, three, three more quick points that I want to give you. Three freedoms that faith gives that pride does not. Three freedoms that give us a reason to rejoice. Here's, here, here they are. Faith gives us freedom from past mistakes. Anyone got any past mistakes? Anyone got anything that you go like, oh gosh, I wish I could go back and do that again? I got some. 
We don't have to live in denial or anxiety about the failings of our past, whether it's been 10 years or 10 days or 10 hours. Those sins and mistakes don't define who we are. Christ defines who you are. You are adopted sons and daughters. We are counted righteous before God. That's who we are. We are loved and saved. Friends, if you were loved and saved when you were ungodly, how much more are you loved and saved as sons and daughters of Christ? No past or future mistake can break that reality. Faith gives us freedom to have limitations. Luther said it this way. He said that we are simultaneously righteous and sinful. So faith gives us the freedom to have limitations. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're adopted rebels. That's who we are. We can say at the same time that, that God has gifted me and I am also extremely flawed morally, but also just, you know, practically, ah, there's things I don't know. I'm ignorant of things. There's things I'm not good at. Even as a pastor, there's things that you're like, yeah, Cody's not very good at that. Hey, surprise, you know? And it's okay. Faith gives us the freedom to have limitations because I don't have to live up to some standard in order to earn something for myself. We can love our church and recognize that every person and every leader in this church is a sinner who's prone to sinning. We are all sinners who are prone to sinning. We are all people who have flaws and faith makes that okay. Not okay to stay in that when we know we can move forward, but, but okay that it exists. Motivating to, to seek to grow instead of paralyzing because we haven't grown enough. What's more, we can recognize all of our limitations and our abilities and, and all of those things. That's why we need each other, not why we should leave each other, right? Because there's things I'm not good at that you're good at. There's things that I can't see that you can see. And that's why God puts us all in the body of Christ, because we need each other. And God gives us freedom. He gives us freedom from our past mistakes. He gives us freedom from our limitations. The last thing, he gives us freedom to be courageous. It's easy when we do make mistakes, when we are slammed by our limitations, or when we realize the damage we've done to others to hole up and to try not to take risks, right? Don't put yourself in a position to hurt others or be hurt yourself again. Don't put yourself in a position to feel like a failure or to be seen as a failure again. Don't put yourself in a position to risk the, the things that give you, you trust that you put your trust in, the things that give you confidence, that you rely on, that your pride is found in. Don't put yourself in a position to risk those things. But God gives you wings when it seems safer to walk, right? The grace of God empowers us to be courageous because our, our entire identity, our entire lives, our everything doesn't depend on being perfect. It depends on Christ. I don't have to be sovereign. 
God is. I don't have to be in control. God is. I don't have to be perfect. God is. I just need to be obedient and faithful. But if through faith God doesn't count our sins against us, we can be bold and courageous for him. We can open up the offense. We can drop back and throw the Hail Mary pass, right? We can throw it deep. Not worrying about throwing a pick or getting sacked because we know we've already won the game. The game's done. We aren't worried about our individual stats. August, uh, Augustine, the church father, he said this. A man well acquainted with pride, right? If, if you remember his story, a man taken by pride before he came to the Lord, but through the Spirit, God captured him and took his heart captive, and he described in a letter to a friend the only way that God has made for us to truly grasp and hold the truth of the gospel and follow Christ. Here's what he said. Guys, get this. Probably after Paul, the greatest church father, the greatest theologian that ever walked the face of the earth, this is what he said about how we can follow Christ. He said this, this way, following Christ, is first humility, second humility, third humility. And however often you should ask me, I would say the same. Not because there are not other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not precede and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not set before us to look upon and beside us to lean upon and behind us to fence us in, pride will wrest from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it. It is true that other defects have to be feared in our sins, but pride is to be feared in our very acts of virtue. Otherwise, those praiseworthy acts will be lost to the desire of praise itself. Do you get what he's saying? Do you see? The very thing you intend to do for God, if pride comes in, if spiritual pride comes in, the very thing you intended to be bring glory to God is bringing glory to yourself. Now that's what your motivation is. The very thing that you had been motivated to do good to others is actually about doing good to yourself. Proclaiming the gospel, defending the faith, standing up against injustice and oppression, calling out sin, lifting up the lowly. No matter how great a sacrifice we make in our service, if some sort of pride comes in, even if it's just in our hearts, it steals it steals it away at the very moment of doing it. That's why pride is so incredibly dangerous. And that's why every single day we need to be reminded of the gospel. Friends, finish with this. Sometimes pride can look like what we would normally think about when we think about boasting. People bragging about themselves, saying how great they are, et cetera, et cetera. But sometimes pride can look very different even though it's very much the same. You see, when we do really well, we tend to boast, we tend to brag. But when we have pride and we do very poorly, or we feel like we're doing very poorly, what happens? We become depressed and anxious. We struggle. We get down on ourselves much more than we really have credit for. And friends, it's the same pride that does both. 
And I've got to be honest with you. And like I said, as I preached this sermon to myself, as I prepared it, uh, I realized that in a lot of ways, I've been an incredibly prideful person as your pastor. And as you know, over the last year or so, it's been a, it's been a difficult year. It's been a hard year for everyone, right? And it's been a hard year to be a pastor. And since we planted uh, almost three years ago, there have been a lot of things that, that, that I felt like I've really failed at. There's been a lot of mistakes that I've made. And then, you know, COVID and all of that trouble comes in and it just amplifies all of everything that's going on. And I have to confess that I got incredibly down on myself. And that is nothing more than me relying on myself rather than relying on God. It's nothing more than pride. That's what it is. And I, I want to say to you that I am sorry for the ways that that pride has inhibited my leadership, the ways that that pride has kept me from uh, being obedient to God in certain things because I was afraid. The ways that that pride has made me defensive and insular in things rather than offensive, rather than taking bold risks for the gospel. And I want you to know as we come out of, as I come out of this, and as we come out of COVID and all the other things that are, have gone on, uh, one of my desires is to play offense again, to take risks for the gospel. take risks that God is calling us to, to be obedient, to see what God can do, to trust in him instead of trusting in myself. Um, so I guess what I want to say as we go into communion is, is this, if, if you would pray with me, you'd pray with me in this season of re-clarifying the vision and the mission that God has given us as we move forward you would pray with me every week, whenever you pray, if you pray for Proclaim, that he would give us vision for where he wants us to go and that we would be bold and courageous enough, knowing we have limitations, knowing we've made past mistakes, but that we would be bold enough to go, you know what, that's where God's taking us. Let's go and let's see what God can do. So I would very much appreciate your prayers. But also, next Friday, I'm inviting anyone who wants to come to my house. I'll send out an email to, uh, to come and pray. And we're just going to pray for, for that. We're going to pray for where, what God wants to do in us and where God is taking us as a church. Um, because I think God's got some awesome things in store. So, let me pray and then Let's take communion together.